3CR would like to acknowledge that we broadcast on the stolen lands of the Wurundjeri and Boonwurrung people of the Kulin Nation, who are the traditional owners and custodians of this land upon which we live and work. We pay respects to Elders past and present and extend that respect to other Indigenous Australians who may be in our audience or listening to this broadcast. We acknowledge the continued resilience of First Nations people in the face of ongoing colonisation and settlement and that sovereignty was never ceded and a treaty never signed. This is 3CR Breakfast. Alternative news, analysis and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to 8.30am. And good morning, Wednesday breakfast listeners. How's everyone this morning? Um, very good. Uh, I've woken up uh, from the chilly, the chilly air woke me up, uh, oh, basically. Yes. Um, but yeah, I've been going good and yeah. Welcome well, back, Sonera. Yeah, it's lovely to have Sonera back with us in the studio after taking a bit of a, a study break. And uh, we've got Patrick here. Yes, thank you. Good and morning. Um, Grace will be joining us shortly for our... AI special this morning. Yeah, we've been dealing on breakfast with artificial intelligence this week. Every show's been doing a special broadcast and, yeah, we've got uh, a number of really exciting guests joining us this morning. Shall we do a bit of a a rundown very quickly? Um, Um, Yeah, so first of all, we have... uh, We will be discussing AI in uh, warfare and how, you know, another... um, Revolution is coming in, uh, you know, the way, uh, you know, the way war will be fought um, is being transformed, um, like at this moment, um, by using artificial intelligence and, you know, what that could mean. um, Is it lethal or is it like, you know, there's lots of ethical questions. So that'll be really interesting. And I'm I'm going to be discussing that with um, AI scientist Professor Toby Walsh. Um, who's been researching artificial intelligence for decades. Excellent. And uh, that'll be followed by our uh, in-studio guest. We have to announce when these people are real, if we're talking about AI. This is a real person coming in in the skin and flesh. Um, (laughs) uh, Yes, we'll have Professor Karen Verspohr from RMIT, who will be talking about the use of AI in healthcare and also the the energy costs associated with big data centres, which is another important issue. And then to wind up the show, Pat, you Uh, have a very interesting interview. Yeah, I've got an interview with the Digital Rights Watch activist, Samantha Floretti. Uh, She is also a columnist for The Guardian, so she'll be fascinating discussing everything with AI impacting our world in journalism, uh, Claudia and Sonera, which is something that we've seen now with the rise of ChatGPT and and everyone uh, using that to get their information when you can just get an old-fashioned book and that does the job in in my eyes uh, when it comes to... When it comes to getting news and our, and our information. Excellent. So moving on to headlines for this morning, 16th of August 2023. 
And we will be starting off with the World Cup. Uh, and last night, Spain were able to defeat Sweden 2-1 in a gripping semi-final with o- Ogla Cremona scoring the winner in the 89th minute. Uh, tonight, Australia will face England in Sydney for an expected 80,000 fans with multiple live sites across uh, Melbourne, one including Amy Park, Fed Square, and I, and I believe that they're opening one in Gippsland as well. So if you're listening and want to go along, go to those live sites or go down to your local uh, pub or recreation centre to watch it along. Thanks, Patrick. And speaking of the World Cup... The Australian Competition and Consumer Commission, also known as the ACCC, has cautioned Matilda's fans to watch out for scammers before buying last-minute tickets to the semi-final on Wednesday night. The National Anti-Scam Centre has issued the warning after it received multiple reports of scams targeting Matilda's fans on social media, but particularly on Facebook. The scams range from fake ticket sale offers and fake live stream links to the match. The ACCC has urged customers to only buy tickets from the official and authorized ticket sellers and to not buy from official web uh, to not buy from websites that have https in the URL and the official ticket resale platforms for the FIFA Women's World Cup can be accessed on the FIFA website. And finally, the Victorian Government will introduce new legislation to reform the Bail Act 1977, making it fairer for vulnerable people and those accused of low-level offences to get bail. They still take a tough approach to those who pose a serious risk to the community and the reforms do not remove the presumption against bail completely. Key elements of the changes will be to abolish the double uplift provision, which previously made it more difficult for people who had committed an offence while on bail to be granted bail for a new offence. There will be a repeal of bail offences for breaching bail conditions and committing further offences while on bail, and an introduction of remand prohibited offences, which will mean that people are not remanded in custody for offences that are unlikely to result in a prison sentence. Implementing a presumption of bail for children with exceptions for certain crimes such as terrorism and homicide offences. And finally, requiring bail decision makers to record how they have considered specific self-determined Aboriginal considerations when making a decision about bail for an Aboriginal person. So that's it for our headlines this morning. And I think we're going to head to our first segment now. Uh, We'll have Grace speaking with Sarah Vivian Bentley, a research scientist at CSIRO, and they'll be discussing the concept of hallucination in artificial intelligence and what is the difference with human hallucinations that we are aware of and what happens in the context of artificial intelligence when we use this term. So joining me this morning is Dr. Sarah Vivian Bentley. Good morning, Sarah. Good morning, Grace. Great to be here. Awesome. Thank you so much for joining us. So, Sarah, can we just first, before we head on to the whole, what is AI hallucination? Let's look at the human first. Like, how does a human hallucinate? 
Yeah, no, that's a really interesting question. And uh, as someone who works in the field of how we sort of think about and perceive uh, artificial intelligence and how we can deploy it responsibly, when uh, myself and colleagues started to see this term banded around about uh, ChatGPT in particular, so generative AI uh, hallucinating, and we were really fascinated by the use of the word because mm. obviously it means a lot within a human context and it wasn't something we were so familiar with. Um, within that sort of artificial intelligence understanding of, of how ChatGPT and these different models of AI are working. Mm. So in terms of human hallucination, of course, you've got the kind of um, people hallucinate when they um, perceive things visually in ways that sort of are, are non-realistic. And that might be uh, related to um, sort of health conditions or uh, drug related um, sort of conditions. But of course, in a broader sense, uh, there's a really interesting understanding of how human beings think mm -hmm. and perceive the world in a way that is slightly sort of hallucinatory in the sense that we have a very subjective kind of view on the world. Um, we have to, as humans navigating our daily lives, we have to process huge amounts of data all the time. And we couldn't possibly uh, be kind of like literally processing and, and analyzing and making decisions based on every bit of incoming information. So we have to make shortcuts, what we call sort of cognitive heuristics, mm -hmm. um, shortcuts all the time in order to successfully go about our world, whether or not that's kind of, you know, uh, me in the morning, uh, dropping um, my uh, daughter off at school and then thinking about a meeting and navigating the road and preparing for uh, what I might need to grab for dinner tonight. And all of those different things are sort of happening all at once, often uh, mostly unconsciously. And so for that reason, we sort of do make these shortcuts in terms of our thinking in order to kind of get through uh, the amount of data. But in terms of uh, the way that we might be shortcutting, we might often be missing bits of information. When we're talking about sort of uh, complex social situations, for instance, that might mean that we're sometimes skipping certain bits of information and not necessarily taking into account all the different factors that we should take into account in order to make the best decisions. And so that was kind of interesting because we're blaming um, for good reason um, ChatGPT and, and AI for hallucinating and making mistakes. And yet, I'm, you know, it kind of occurs to us, I'm a social psychologist, that we're not terribly aware of all the interesting, fascinating ways that we have of somewhat hallucinating ourselves. Mm, that is very interesting. And then, so I guess now coming into the whole understanding about what is AI hallucination, you use a context of an AI called LOM. Can you explain to us what that AI is? Yeah, so um, large LLM, large language models, are basically sort of forms of artificial intelligence modeling um, and, and particularly generative um, AI, which means that the um, artificial intelligence uh, literally generates an output. And the most familiar um, to us right now in kind of um, modern Western society is the launch of ChatGPT that, that kind of hit our lives at the end of last year um, to in a very, very dramatic very, very high impact, fast way. And, and, and I'm pretty sure you would have had a go at ChatGPT and, mm -hmm. and tried it out and, and seen what it what it can do. Um, generative AI of that form, um, it can generate text, as we see in the sort of ChatGPT example, whereby you can kind of have a conversation 
um, with that uh, AI, that large language model, and it will converse back to you in text form. And it's it's fantastically persuasive. It, it, I mean, it's an extraordinary piece of um, technological innovation. Mm. Um, you can, you know, ask it things. It's very believable. It's very, uh, generally speaking, quite polite. It, it can do huge, it can respond in, in huge ways um, conversationally um, in a way that's profoundly useful for us in terms of all of the sort of managing knowledge and, uh, and kind of using those tools to help with our own thinking processes. But generative AI isn't restricted to text. Um, there's artificial intelligence that can generate images that, that we've also kind of seen a fair bit in the press um, that can generate sound, um, music, videos as well. So multimodal outputs that are effectively generated by artificial intelligence uh, models um, like the one that, as I say, we're very familiar with ChatGPT and its conversational presentations. Mm. And then now mm. into the AI hallucination that can occur in with LL, like for example, this LLM model. So, yeah, how how does it work? Like, what what does it mean when AI hallucinates? Well, interestingly, it's um, it, there is an overlap, I suppose, with uh, an AI hallucinating and a human hallucinating, in the sense that they're kind of you know the AI is endeavouring to fill the gap. It's it's effectively when a large language model like ChatGPT is responding to a question that you might pose, mm. it's going to answer that question effectively on the basis of a kind of word order generation. It's trained on um, reams and reams and reams of existing text-based data. Um, so it processes all of that. It's learned all of that. And it, um, and it sort of scales up from what word comes next to what how, how sentence structures are, are formed in terms of what it's, uh, what it's understood and read before. And all of that data that it's understood and read before, I use the term understood very loosely there, mm. um, but all that data that it's trained on um, is human-generated data at this point in time. And so um, effectively... It, then you ask it a question and it will kind of predict um, the type of response and predict the words that, that sort of concatenate to form the sentence that gives you that very, very persuasive human-like um, conversational answer that it sort of puts back to you. Um, and they, all the time they are very uh, persuasively look like they're correct. But there are instances um, where it, chat GPT uh, and similar large language models like that answer very, very, very confidently and very sort of persuasively. But in reality, they answer entirely falsely and they'll be quoting very, very false information um, back at you, but without ever saying, um, I don't know, or I'm not sure what this answer is, or I think this doesn't sound quite right, but I'll try it anyway. They don't do that. They just uh, respond back um, and give you a response that, you know, is seemingly very believable. I, I actually was reading a little bit this morning um, and someone quoted uh, asking ChatGPT about the sole survivor of the Titanic. I tried it myself and I um, went into ChatGPT this morning and, and asked it who was the sole survivor of the of the Titanic. And unfortunately, it did still give me uh, an answer. It named um, one individual as the sole survivor of the Titanic. So, so there are interesting little anomalies that occur and these anomalies occur as a result of limitations in the data um, mm. on which the, the AI, the artificial intelligence model, has been trained. Um, they might occur due to um, kind of training uh, gaps in the training process 
um, mm. and that may they may be algorithmic gaps or they may be gaps with regard to um, the sort of more active training that occurs. So when you're building these large language models, um, you want to automate the training process as much as possible for obvious reasons. But then there's also a really significant um, human collaborative training process that has to happen on the back of that, whereby actual humans um, test the system out effectively. And during that testing process, which can take a long time and involve many, many, many people um, actively inputting back into the system, um, human beings will be correcting those AI responses as they go um, mm. to try and sort of weed out those errors and, and also uh, improve the fluency and the kind of sense making of the AI system itself. But of course, you know, things, problems happen um, mm. and, you know, it's impossible to rule all of those out. Um, given the very persuasive nature of this technology in the sense that the average human being is relatively time poor. Um, so having a tool that gives you uh, like beautifully crafted, um, polite, engaging responses is is really persuasive um, when you want to get some information and get your job done. And you might be using it, um, you know, educationally or in an organizational workplace context. And you may not have that much time. And then you can be lulled into a sort of false sense of belief that you know, the information is objective and is trustworthy. And that's one of uh, the human biases that we know exists very strongly. It's a, a bias called the automation bias, whereby mm. when humans are interacting with machines and computers and things that are theoretically sort of objective uh, and non-emotional, um, we tend to assume that they're going to be correct, um, which tends to be a very false assumption. And there's all, you know, we always need our, our kind of discerning, read-the-room type human head-on when we're interpreting information from any source, regardless of whether it's from a machine or from a human. Um, but of course, we, we do sometimes forget we have this kind of blind spot. And we're like, oh, no, you know, this is a piece of technology. It's very advanced. Of course, it's going to tell me the truth. So um, that, that's kind of an issue in terms of how we as humans uh, develop these tools. Mm. Um, we have to work really hard, um, and, and people are, um, but I feel that there's more work to be done here, uh, ensuring that the data sets are as um, robust, reliable, inclusive, expansive, uh, ensuring that they're kind of representative of um, uh, uh, broad sections of society and broad sections of knowledge uh, in all of its diversity and variance, uh, and they're not restricted. Um, understanding what biases might be in that data, because um, it's come from humans, and we are biased individuals, whether or not that's biases that are very explicit, um, with regard to issues around sort of racial bias within society, for instance, or whether those biases are more implicit and invisible. But either way, they're definitely there. Um, so working on those biases, making them more visible and then counteracting them is really important. And then obviously, you know, embellishing the training process as much as possible to iron out all of those hallucinations is really key. Um, but of course, we, you know, it's such a new technology. Mm, that That is very interesting in that sense of like, Looking at um, what can, what can be done. Well, well, sorry. Unfortunately, we're actually running out of time. But I just want to get this very light note of a last question to ask. Like, it it seems like it's really more on the fact that they assume a lot. Uh, I mean, it's based on assumptions on and mm. when they predict answers. So why why do you think is there a reason why is it called a hallucination or and why is it not just called like oh this just assumptions of like the robot. <laughs> Yeah, um, it's it's an interesting one. I mean, I always, I find 
discussing words and the words we use super fascinating. And of course, we never actually have enough words to cover the, the meaning of everything yeah. that we want to convey. So, mm. I mean, as I say, there are limited words that one can use around uh, this sort of stuff. And this is uncharted territory. So, yes, it is sort of it's an interesting word. It's possibly uh, a little bit kind of inappropriate because it does really kind of conjure up this idea of the AI being very human because mm. hallucinating is such a human term mm -hmm. and it also kind of conjures up the idea that the AI is uh, you know is a little bit um, you know Machiavellian or, or, or maybe not yeah. honest and, and lying to us or, or a bit deluded which again is another human very human sort of term and the mm. reality is that it's none of those things it's just a, a comp very complicated sophisticated algorithm which which sometimes like humans goes wrong and we need to address those things and, and deal with that um but the term hallucinating is evocative of a whole load of other ideas and of course it it works well in a media domain because it sounds so exciting that your ai is hallucinating yes. and whether or not that's helpful i'm not sure but <laughs> it, it certainly was interesting to us when we wrote the piece mm, definitely but yeah anyway um Thank you so much, Sarah, for joining us this morning. You, it's been really lovely having you. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. Oh, thank you. And that was Sarah Vivian Bentley, research scientist at the Commonwealth Scientific and Industrial Re Research Organisation, or CSIRO, discussing AI hallucination with grace. Over to you, Sonera. Thank you, Claudia. And, yeah, uh well, I've been wondering, uh, will AI revolutionize warfare? And the answer is that it likely will. Lethal autonomous weapons, or as some may call them, killer robots, are rapidly making their way into modern warfare, but not in the way that many people may think. Forget the Terminator. Uncrewed submarines, attack drones and robotic vehicles using artificial intelligence are already being developed and trialed for defense forces in the US, Russia, China and Australia, amongst many others, with Australia's own Defense Review recommending spending up to $19 billion on these new technologies over the next few years. The use of AI in warfare raises many questions. Will having fewer humans involved in warfare make it less lethal? Or will, having the, or will leaving the killing two algorithms end up causing more harm? To discuss these ethical concerns, I was joined by Professor Toby Walsh, who is Chief Scientist at the AI Institute at the University of New South Wales. Let's take a listen. Just to start off, can you explain what autonomous weapon systems are for listeners who may not be as familiar and how have they been used so far? So they sometimes are called more extravagantly killer robots. Uh, the problem with the name killer robots is it colours up images of, of Hollywood, of Terminator and um, and we're talking about much less sophisticated systems than that. Um, uh, your listeners will no doubt be familiar with seeing pictures of drones um, flying above the skies of Afghanistan and Iraq. Those are semi-autonomous. Um, they don't fly themselves these days. These days you just give them coordinates. They fly to those coordinates. So that's pretty automatic. But there's still a typically a human in the loop. There's still someone, a soldier in a container back in Nevada whose finger is on the trigger who's making the life or death decision as to where to fire maybe the Hellfire missile from that 
that drone platform. But it's a, a very small technical leap to remove that human and replace it by a computer algorithm that's making that decision. And indeed, there are already such systems starting to be fielded and possibly starting to be used. There was a UN report that suggested that such systems uh, have actually already been used, where there is no human who's making the decision. And the decision has been handed over to an algorithm. And that's what we call a lethal autonomous weapon system. You're seeing them in every theatre of war. You see them in the air, drones like that I've just talked about. But also you're seeing increasingly um, in other uh, theatres of war um, on the land. We see autonomous tanks starting to be developed. We've got autonomous mines, of course. Um, on the sea, uh, the U.S. Navy has the first fully autonomous ship that's been able to cross the Pacific completely without any human assistance. Uh, and under the sea, we have autonomous submarines being developed. Um, uh, and indeed, the thing that frightens me most, I think, is uh, an autonomous submarine um, that goes by the name of Poseidon, uh, the, the god of the sea, that the Russians are developing size of a size of a bus. It's going to be nuclear powered, so it can travel almost unlimited distances at very high speed. Um, and it's believed it's going to carry a dirty nuclear bomb. And so there we would well, be handing over decisions to start a nuclear war to an algorithm, which is, I think, quite a frightening idea. Yes, it's um, all really terrifying. And something that terrifies me is that you've also mentioned that automation or AI is signaling like a new age of you know, warfare, much like uh -huh. how the invention of nuclear bombs and gunpowders um, transformed the ways that wars were fought. So what kind of change might we be seeing with the in, uh, in wars with the inclusion of AI? Well, you're right to compare it to the invention of gunpowder and to the invention of nuclear weapons. And indeed, military historians talk about this as being perhaps the the third revolution in warfare, those being the first two revolutions that that were step changes in the way we could fight war, that they changed um, the speed with which we could kill um, our enemy. This is also going to industrialize warfare. Uh, and previously, if you needed to do what to do harm, you had to have an army. You had to equip thousands of people to do your do your will. You had to train them. You had to give them uh, food. You had to uh, give them weapons. Uh, and then persuade them to do whatever evil it is you wanted them to do. Uh, now you wouldn't need that. You just need one programmer. And you could, with a thousand drones, kill a thousand people. Um, it allows you to, to scale warfare. Um, it really will change um, not only the scale, but also the speed and potentially the accuracy of warfare. I mean, it will get to the point, I imagine, where um, as soon as the, as the fighting starts, all the humans will be killed because you won't be able to work at that, those speeds. You won't have the reflexes. You won't have the accuracy. Um, of course, machines like this can work 24-7. They never need to sleep, rest, eat, uh, or do any of the things that humans have to do. So it would really change the character of warfare, just as the way that the machine gun or the uh, nuclear bomb has also changed the character of warfare, um, and not in a good way. Um, it would perhaps lower the barriers to war. Uh, we're already seeing the use of drones has perhaps encouraged um, the conflicts that we're starting to see um, in Afghanistan and elsewhere. The, the U.S. president can sit in the comfort of the White House thinking that he's not risking U.S. soldiers on foreign soil. Um, but probably the, the U.S., I suspect, has been drawn deeper into those conflicts by those sorts of uh, concerns. So, um, yes, it's it's something to be greatly concerned about something that um, I and indeed many of my colleagues working in the field 
um, have advocated that we really need to to think carefully about where we go. Um, because it's worth pointing out, of course, many technologies um, we've decided not to use for fighting war. Chemical weapons, biological weapons, uh, even to a limited extent, nuclear weapons, um, blinding lasers, cluster munitions. There's actually a whole host of technologies that we decided are repugnant or unnecessary for fighting war, and that we've got plentiful ways of fighting war, plentiful means of deterrent, um, and that we don't need necessarily to use all technologies um, especially ones that are going to be so disruptive and so destructive. Um, and so um, I'm, I've spoken now half a dozen times to the UN about this very issue to say, well, wait a second, maybe we should think carefully about this. Maybe we should um, include autonomous weapons alongside chemical weapons, alongside biological weapons, alongside cluster munitions and the various other types of technologies that we've decided uh, perhaps we should not fight war um, and that... Um, the world would be a better place if we collectively made those decisions. It's really interesting because, um, you know, last year you and uh, 119 other Australians were banned from Russia indefinitely as a response to Western sanctions on them after the invasion of U- Ukraine. And that had to do with you being outspoken about um, using AI in warfare but can you tell us specifically what what you think it was that got you on that list and what your concerns were about the um, autonomous weapons that Russia was using in Ukraine yes Uh, well they don't exactly uh, write to you and tell you you just get put on the list so you have to try and work it indirectly why why it was Um, but I I I do suspect uh, um, I do fear that historians of warfare will look back on the Ukrainian conflict um, and see this as being the moment where uh, this, these technologies started to become prevalent, started to be um, developed. Um, we're starting to see, indeed, on both sides of the conflict, um, increasingly autonomous we- weapons being um, developed. I, I did speak out very vocally about one of these weapons that the U.S. military, uh, sorry, the Russian military are using on Ukrainian soil. Uh, which is this bouncing Betty mine. Um, it's a derivative of something that was developed in the Second World War, but now has been given some art intelligence to supposedly make it smarter. So this is a quite repugnant mine. It's an anti-personal mine designed to kill people. Um, it um, uh, sits on the ground, and when it, it has a little uh, metal spike that's stuck into the ground that senses vibrations of sort of some people walking up towards it, and as it senses someone walking up to it. That's what the AI is used to do that sensing. Um, It bounces up in the air a metre or two and then explodes shrapnel um, designed to cause maximal uh, damage to your soft internal organs um, in a radius of about 50 metres or so, Um, most disliked by by, um, foot soldiers on the ground because of those. uh, It's designed to to injure as much as it is to kill. this is um, particularly uh, uh, sad and, and ironic that, that the Russians are using it because um, the Ukrainians are signatories to a UN treaty, an anti-personal mine treaty that bans such weapons. But of course, Russia is not a signatory to that tr- treaty. But nevertheless, uh, Ukrainian soil is now being littered with these mines. Um, and the Russians have claimed that because of the AI, it's a smart weapon. It's going to cause less collateral damage. It's not. It's going to be able to recognise. They claim it's going to be able to recognise the difference between uh, friendly and uh, foreign combatants. Are going to be 
able perhaps to recognize the difference between civilians and combatants now that's um let's let's not beat around the bush that's absolute bullshit there's no chance at all that it could tell the difference between a ukrainian soldier and a russian soldier maybe it could tell the difference between a child and an adult uh, by the size of the footprints and the length of the step but um that's all the um intelligence could be doing there so it's uh, an unfortunate example of what i suspect we're going to see a lot more in the future which is that people are going to be claiming they're using ai to make the weapons more humanitarian Whereas the reality is that they're using the AI to make the weapons more more destructive and warfare to be a, a more nasty thing. You're listening to 3CR Breakfast at 8.55 a.m. And that was AI scientist Toby Walsh speaking about AI in modern warfare and Russia's AI-powered landmines in Ukraine. Here's Toby telling us more about Australia's plans in using AI for the military. Um, I just wanted to talk about the defence review and just Australia specifically. Can you give us some insight into like some of the examples of autonomous weapons that we are likely to see from Australia's defence force? Yes. Um, so yes, it's worth it is worth discussing this because it's worth pointing out that Australia is developing such weapons and therefore does have a a moral and a legal responsibility to think about how we go about doing that in a responsible, careful way. Um, indeed, um, we are actually um, spending quite a bit of money on it. There's a uh, uh, hundred million U- uh, Aussie dollars being spent on the um, Trusted Autonomous Systems Defence (CRC) Centre of Research uh, Centre of Research Excellence. Um, that is uh, looking to develop such weapons, and in particular, uh, one that you know, maybe you may have heard about is the uh, Loyal Wingman. This is a joint project with Boeing, who we um, spent a lot of money with, um, to develop a autonomous drone that's going to fly alongside our latest generation F thirty five fighters. Um, and indeed, um, as I understand, the fear is that the F thirty five, these manned fighters, are really going to be quite redundant quite soon because of all of these autonomous systems that are going to be much more capable. Um, and this is a way of actually ensuring that, that the F-35, very expensive platform, of course, you know, cost um, tens of millions of dollars to be build each one and, and got to have an expensive, um, highly trained pilot inside, is not made redundant by much cheaper autonomous systems, is by having um, one or more of these loyal wingmen that fly alongside and indeed can be sort of sacrificial and could take out the missiles that are coming towards the F-35. So um, we are developing such systems ourselves, and therefore it is really important that we are engaged actively in the discussions about um, what are what are the limits. Of course, it's worth pointing out, there are plentiful good things that the military, or the Australian military in particular, could be using AI for. Indeed, I hope we'll be using AI for in the near future. I have colleagues at Data61, Sarah Data61, we're working on a autonomous mind clearing robot. Um, perfect job for a robot. You should never risk anyone's life or limb clearing a minefield ever again. Send a robot in. If the robot makes a mistake, the robot gets blown up. Well, that's perfectly fine. Go out and buy another robot. Um, so there's plentiful ways that we should be using AI to actually improve um, our, our military to save lives um, that um, I'm not worried about at all. But but handing over that decision as to who lives or who dies to an algorithm 
I think is a, a moral and a legal step too far. What are the ethical concerns of using like lethal autonomous weapons in war? And I'm sure we've like touched on it throughout the interview, but um, should uh-huh. they be more regulated? And are there any efforts to regulate them? I definitely believe, as do many of my colleagues working in the field, believe they should be regulated. Um, there are there are a host of reasons to th- worry about them and to think that they deserve to be regulated. Um, there are you know, moral reasons um, about uh, whether, indeed, whether they already uh, abide by international humanitarian law. We already have rules of war um, that do try to limit uh, what we can do on the battlefield to make war a less terrible thing. I mean, it's not clear that such weapons would by, abide by the, 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 the fundamental principles, principles such as um, distinction. You, you can only uh, target combatants. Well, it's not clear that these weapons have, at least today, the sophistication to be ensured that they're not um, killing uh, innocent civilians or they're not killing um, people who are what's called or combat. People who are outside the uh, the battlefield. If you if you surrender or if you're injured and lying uh, wounded on the battlefield, you're considered no longer a proper target, uh, and you're um, entitled to um, to the protections of the Geneva Convention. Um, it's not clear that these weapons will be able to make those sorts of um, distinctions. Um, another important principle of international humanitarian law is proportionality. You can only you're only allowed um, to attack your uh, enemy. Um, proportional to the threat that that enemy poses, you can't um, you can't go and you know bomb all their civilian hospitals and things like that. It's not proportional, um, and again, it's not clear that these weapons will have that subtlety of reasoning to do that. Um, but equally, um, I, I think we just from a, you know, a much more fundamental philosophical moral perspective is that you know, machines are not moral beings. They don't have our empathy, our compassion. They're not, you can't punish a machine as you can a human. Um, you know, there is always the threat if you do something that's uh, contrary to international humanitarian law that you will face a, uh, a court, you will face an appearance in The Hague or, or in, in some similar court to answer for the war crimes that you have committed. Well, you can't hold an algorithm responsible for war crimes. I mean, what can you do to an algorithm? You can turn the computer off, that doesn't matter. Um, these are not moral beings. They they don't sit there. Um, and it also removes the dignity of war. War is a, a terrible thing. But there is some dignity in it. It's human against human. Um, there is some, you know, there is the empathy of your, your fellow combatant, the, the mercy of your fellow combatant. Um, and machines will have none of that. They will also, and terribly so, lower the barriers to war. Um, they may indeed encourage warfare. The idea that... Um, you can send your robots out, commit a first strike that uh, is impossible to defend against and therefore gain advantage. And that may encourage people. Um, and then they, they, they are also, of course, um, going to uh, perhaps um, muddy the waters. We already actually have a case of a, a Russian base in Syria that was attacked by drones. And we don't know who was behind the attack. Well, we don't actually, you know, we're not sure exactly who's behind the attack because they, they brought the drones down, but you open the drones up and you can't, you know, there's Intel chips inside. That doesn't tell you who is behind the attack. So it removes that connection back to the people attacking you and it introduces a sense of uncertainty as to ambiguity as to actually who is attacking you. Um, 
So they're going to be very destabilizing. And they're going to be also very destabilized because these are going to be, I suspect, quite cheap and, and cheerful weapons that are easy for people to buy, cheap for people to buy, not like nuclear weapons, which are difficult to obtain, require sophisticated resources, the wealth of the nation state to, to obtain. These are going to be cheap. They're going to be just like the drones you can buy down at your local toy store, but the sophistication will be in the algorithms. Um, and so they're going to proliferate if we're not careful, and they're going to fall into the hands of of, of many bad actors, not just state actors, um, not just states, whether they be Russia or whoever, um, but also non-state actors, terrorist organizations. They are going to be the perfect weapons of terror um, that you can use to commit uh, whatever harms you want. I mean, it's worth remembering, you know, you could give these instructions that would be quite, quite distasteful. You could say, well, kill all the children or kill all the women. That's uh, um, something that you could easily program uh, an algorithm to do. Um, and unlike humans, where you'd have to persuade people that this is the right thing to do, the computer would follow those instructions to the letter. As an AI scientist, did you think that um, these weapons would come this far or be used in these ways? Or was this actually something that you were certain about? Did you see the arms race that you were trying to prevent actually happening? Yeah, I've spent about a decade now concerned about this issue as I, as I saw this arms race starting to pick up and to see that the technologies were becoming accessible um, and this arms race was starting to happen. Um, and unfortunately, now we're starting to see such weapons being used in anger, um, which makes it, you know... Like, if if um, if we'd banned the weapons 10 years ago when myself and my colleagues had started to campaign about this issue, I think it would be a lot easier. Um, once the weapons are in the hands of more and more militaries, it becomes more and more difficult to ban them. I, I'm confident in the end that we will, because these ultimately are weapons of mass destruction. They will let you scale warfare, industrialize warfare. And every other weapon of mass destruction, chemical weapons, biological weapons, nuclear weapons have been regulated. So in that sense, I think it, there is some inevitability. What really concerns me, though, is that almost every form of weapon regulation has happened after the event, after we've seen the weapons being used, misused in battle. We only regulated chemical weapons after the horrors of the First World War, and we saw chemical weapons being used uh, on the battlefields um, in Europe. Um, nuclear weapons have been regulated now, but only again after they were used in anger at the end of the Second World War. And similarly, what really worries me is that we're not going to regulate these weapons until we see the harms that they commit um, on our TV screens and then realize, well, wait a second, maybe we don't need to use these weapons. There are plentiful ways of fighting war. Um, let's, um, let's ensure that these are uh, regulated to some extent. And that was AI scientist Toby Walsh discussing the effect of AI on war, which is um, some very terrifying stuff. You can also catch Toby on the Labour Fringe event, which is on this Friday, where he will be talking about what AI means for the modern world. Um, next up, stay tuned for discussing AI in the healthcare space with... Um, Professor Karen Vespor, um, sorry about that, who's um, joining us in the studio later on. But first up, we'll be back after um, an announcement.
The Chilean community, in partnership with the AMWU's International Solidarity Initiative, is holding a commemorative event for the 50th anniversary of Chile's coup, September 11, the day that changed us forever. Join generations of Chilean refugees, exiles and recent arrivals together with Australian unionists and activists in the Solidarity Movement for a night of testimonies, speakers, poetry and music on Monday, September 11 from 6pm at Solidarity Hall at the Victorian Trades Hall. This event will be held in English and all are welcome. To register, search for Chile 50 Years on eventbrite.com.au. Chile, 50 years of solidarity and struggle. A 3CR supporter. And you're listening to 3CR Breakfast. Hope you're enjoying our AI special this morning. We're joined now in the studio with Professor Karen Vespoor. Executive Dean of the School of Computing Technologies, RMIT University. Karen is a Fellow of the Australasian Institute of Digital Health and was selected as an AI in Innovation finalist at the Women in AI Australia New Zealand Awards in 2022. Karen is passionate about using artificial intelligence in healthcare to enable biological discovery and clinical decision support from data. She's here with us now to talk about AI in the healthcare space, the risks and rewards, as well as emerging concerns about the use of energy in big data centres. Welcome to breakfast, Karen. Thank you so much for having me. It's an absolute pleasure. So this must be quite a mind-boggling space to be in. The possibilities must just be endless. (laughs) Can you give us some examples of areas within health uh, where AI is already operating and doing things better than humans? Yeah, the main area where we're seeing great value from AI in health is on analyzing images. So if you think about a CT scan or a lung scan, the AI can analyze that image and effectively support a diagnosis. This image indicates cancer. Another example is skin cancer. So we can have um, images of melanomas and the AI can distinguish between a cancerous melanoma and a non-cancerous lesion. Wow. Um, And are there also developments in other areas of diagnosis? There are attempts to be using AI in the context of analyzing electronic health records and leveraging things like the um, laboratory results, urinalysis results, blood analysis, even the clinical notes. So actually looking at the documentation that nurses and doctors write during the course of care and trying to leverage that to support understanding what's going on with the patient and really trying to um, determine what symptoms they're, see- they're seeing and that can evolve over time. Sure. We'll come back to that afterwards because there's some, you know, interesting aspects I want to unpack there. Um, So with this whole AI space, there's obviously a lot of excitement about the possibilities and what is already um, operating in the space. But there is a lot of concern as well about risks, uh, some of which are safety, transparency, trust, accuracy, ethics. Uh, Can you tell us how these risks play out in the healthcare space? Obviously, 
our healthcare data is some of the most sensitive data that is out there. And people are really concerned that their personal health information might end up in a model somewhere and might be disclosed inadvertently without their consent or without um, their knowledge. And so we have to be really careful to manage that data effectively. We can't build these AI systems without data, though. So it's really important for us to be thinking through how we can work with people's very sensitive data um, while also respecting their, their, the sensitivity of that data. The other thing that we need to worry about is the harm that we can do, because, of course, your health is the most important and valuable thing. We need to be healthy in order to function as humans. And if we're prescribed the wrong medication or we're given an inaccurate diagnosis, it can have longer term effects for us and impacts might even hurt us more. Can you explain how um, errors might be made using AI? Because there is a a sense that um, computers might be more accurate than a human and they sort of take the emotion out of decisions and they're using data which might commonly be confused with facts. But as we know, there's a lot of misinformation available as well. So how does this play out in terms of the, the level of accuracy and how we can trust what an AI model, you know, shows us. Yeah, so first of all, it's really important for us to have a measurement of how well these models perform and have rigorous approaches to assessing the accuracy. One of the reasons why the image analysis has taken off and really done very well is because the input data, the images themselves, is very reliable. It's very consistent. The The images that come off of, of machines like MRI machines or the CT scan scanning machines are very consistent. It's the same size and shape of the image every time. Um, and the, you know, the contrast and the parameters of the machines are, are consistent. And so AI works well in that setting because we can control the inputs. In other settings where we start to look at electronic health record data, for instance, it's much more variable. And exactly what's captured, exactly when it's captured, um, can vary depending on what hospital you're in or, or which provider you see. And because of that variability, that then introduces the possibility that there's a, a big gap between the data that an AI model will have seen during training and what's actually happening for an individual patient in practice. Mm. So the data quality issues and the, the data variability between settings is what causes a lot of the potential for error. And there's also the issue of bias, which is talked about a lot in AI. Um, we know it exists in all human data, and then the AI reads the data and the bias can be repeated. Do you believe it's possible to correct this bias through human oversight of AI systems? Or is this an illusory task as long as we have bias and discrimination in society? 
there's always going to be bias in our data and um, there's always going to be bias in our society. However, I do believe that we can mitigate against that as long as we're aware of it and we take steps to to work to work to mitigate it. So um, when we're training, for instance, we need to ensure that the people that are represented in the in the training data are representative of the broader society. And um, that's often not the case. For instance, in genomics, we know that the vast majority of genomic sequences that we've we've captured about people, their DNA sequences, <coughs> correspond to Caucasian men because they've been collected in Europe and the United States primarily, and um, men have been more willing to, to volunteer to come forward. Now, we need to ensure that the data sets capture all ethnicities and, and ages and genders, of course, um, in order to ensure that, that we don't have um, as much bias we also need to be thinking about those different categories of people when we do the training and evaluation. So one approach that, that I've been recommending to people is to essentially analyze the performance or the accuracy of the systems by different groups. So look at how well the model works for women as compared to men. Look at how well the model works for people from Southeast Asia as compared to people um, with a European background. So if we actually analyze the performance of the models according to those different groups, we can get a sense of whether it is cons performing consistently across those groups or not. Mm. And would it also be important that the, the, the human who has the oversight of the system also is uh, representative of different groups as well? I think that's a really important part of how we ensure the technology itself is less mm. biased. So um, I believe it's important to have diverse teams building building <clears throat> these systems. And that, that's true for all AI. It's not, not just true in the healthcare setting. We need people who understand essentially how different experiences might impact the the um, <clears throat> the way these models are used. But another aspect um, which is relevant is that in most of these systems, especially in the healthcare setting, we don't want to hand over complete decision-making power to the machine. We want there to be a human in the loop that can look at factors that are not in the data or decide to run another test to get more information and essentially have a more kind of considered use of the technology rather than, rather than blindly making use of it. And, uh, Another area I wanted to ask you about was language. So if we've got a database, you've talked a lot about um, using images, but a lot of what AI also searches is databases of text. And as we know, language is uh, something which can be quite subjective. It can be used differently by different people, but it also can be interpreted differently. And I was thinking about when you were talking about clinical notes and so forth, you know, you've got individual doctors who have their own style of writing, presumably their own shorthand forms, and you have patients who give their history. You know, some patients might give it very anecdotally, others might be, you know, more structured. And I just wondered how all of that sort of fits into a model which is going to read uh, 
such a vast range of different styles and uh, words. Yeah. Yeah, it's a real challenge. There is a huge amount of variability between people, between hospital systems, between GPs. Everybody has their own way of writing. Of course, the language of health is fairly consistent. So there tend to be standardized ways to refer to things. So, you know, diseases have a particular name. Um, Even things that are a little bit harder to pin down, like delirium, um, are often described using fairly consistent language. So we we um, can see nurses describing a patient being confused, a patient being delirious. Um, and so th- that's part of the training that, that doctors and nurses get is to use the right words to describe what they're seeing. So even, even when a patient may be describing something very anecdotally, the doctor's actually kind of translating that into their medical language. And the documentation may be more more consistent um, than what the patient can express. But nevertheless, we see huge variability. Um, For instance, I've worked in emergency department notes, and you mentioned shorthand. Shorthand really varies quite a lot between different hospitals because they have their sort of local language, their local lingo, um, which um, is part of the, the, the local culture. And so the documentation reflects those those choices what are the abbreviations that are relevant in this context for instance or yeah what are the kind of shorthand terminology and especially in emergency department notes which are really brief they're often basically just one sentence long um, those that shorthand can can become a real um, factor to consider so we have to we have to be really careful about the approaches um, that we use to to model that data because we want to make sure we focus on the right terminology and that we have ways of um, handling changes in in the local lingo. Yeah, so I wanted to actually come to that um, point as well about local customization of AI because in an article that you uh, recently co-authored in the conversation, you cautioned Australia against uh, relying too heavily on models developed in overseas settings um, and emphasises the importance of uh, developing our own AI, which is customised for our local populations. Can you explain why that is so important? Yeah, so our population is different for one thing. So we have actually quite an amazing diversity um, in the Australian population, more diversity than in many other parts of the world. So that's part of it, that we we know that the patterns of disease and the patterns of symptoms that, that exist in our local patient populations will vary from what what is seen in the United States, for instance. And then there's the aspect of um, the documentation and the systems that, that varies quite a lot, um, even within between hospitals, even within uh, the wards of a hospital, there can be um, different systems that are used. We have an entirely different approach to funding our healthcare system here in Australia as compared to other um, parts of the world. And that has implications for what we document because of the, the, the interaction between essentially billing and reimbursement and our healthcare system. So different things are documented because of the context. 
And that then interacts, of course, with what data we have in our systems. If we're not documenting exactly the same thing, then we can't expect a model that's been trained with one set of assumptions around what the data looks like to work in, in our settings. So many layers. We're going to take a short break now uh, to hear a couple of announcements. Um, we're talking with Professor Karen Verspohr, and she'll be staying with us, so don't go away, uh, to talk about the implications of big data centres for energy use and sustainability, and also the role of capitalism in funding big AI. 3CR is about community, and we welcome your participation at the station. 3CR is open to a wide diversity of volunteers and is a great way to connect with Melbourne's activist community. Have you ever thought about volunteering, doing a reception shift, getting a program on air, training in radio skills, or contributing to one of the station's committees? There are many ways to be involved at 3CR. To find out more, go to 3cr.org.au and get in touch. Ross House has community meeting rooms available for hire at subsidised rates. Perfect for small meetings, student study groups, Zoom conferencing and seminars. Facilities include free Wi-Fi, display screens for presentations, projector and sound system and a Zoom conferencing system. HEPA filter units have been placed in every meeting room. You can book and pay via their website, rosshouse.org.au or contact reception during office hours on 9650-1599. Ross House is a 3CR supporter. And you're listening to 3CR Breakfast uh, with our AI special. And we've been talking with Professor Karen Verspohr from RMIT University and hearing about uh, the use of AI in healthcare settings. Now, Karen's also uh, worked in startups in the US. And so it's a great opportunity to hear a little bit about uh, how AI is funded and uh, the role of capitalism in in the ongoing debates that we're having about efficacy and accuracy and uh, ethics in AI. So, Karen, it takes a lot of money to build sophisticated computer models and potentially there's a lot of money to be made from new AI technologies. What is your view on the role of capitalism in artificial intelligence development and what are you most concerned about? That's a big question. (laughs) So clearly, yes, it takes a lot of money to build at least the modern version of AI systems. Um, And it's not just the people resources, which is is obviously a a big cost. There's expertise that's needed, has has to be brought in uh, into the room to, to make these things. But there's the computational systems. And the current data-driven AI models are data-hungry, which means that you need to store and represent a huge amount of data. The models themselves are huge. We hear people talking about large language models, and they're large because they have to represent all of the nuance and the complexity of human language. And that means big machines. 
We know that training these models takes a huge amount of time and compute power as they crunch through all of those words that they've collected um, from online resources. And it costs money. It costs compute time. It costs data center time. It, it costs people time. And so capitalism, I guess, you know, money is, is what, what drives uh, a lot of this. We do, of course, have some research investment that's coming from governments into this. But the primary players are the big corporations, Google, Microsoft, Facebook. They're all active in developing these large AI systems. And it, and it takes a lot of money. We have startups now starting to get into this space but they need to raise capital as well. And so they turn to venture capitalists for, for support. And those venture capitalists, of course, are looking for a return. Yeah, so that's uh, the part that becomes interesting. I was reading that um, the timelines for producing returns on investments uh, can conflict sometimes with the timelines necessarily necessary to properly uh, program and train AI models. Um, and that, that presents a really interesting uh, dichotomy. Yeah, so even ChatGPT, which, which most people have heard about by now, I think took s several months to train the initial versions. And um, we're hearing about them retraining these models in, tr tr in order to keep them accurate. But e those training cycles are quite long. And if we think about... Um, startups that are under pressure to, to get things out in, into, the, into the market, they either have to build on the language models that are, that are available from the larger companies um, and then essentially adapt them to the particular application that they want to, to use them for, or they have to find the resources to, to build them these things themselves. And that's not always straightforward. So yes, there is a bit of a conflict in the health space, it gets even worse um, for these, these companies because there's regulation um, that is critical for ensuring the safety of, of these applications. And the process of getting regulatory approval is, is long. You have to provide evidence that your system is effective and that it won't do harm. And because of that rigorous process, which is completely necessary, it can often um, require ongoing resources for up to two years before a product can actually be released to the public. So what are the risks to uh, consumers or patients in this space, given you've got these uh, regulatory requirements, but you've also got uh, investors committing huge amounts of money to projects and wanting to see a return in a particular space of time? Is there a risk that... Um, those two forces, I guess, will butt up against each other. And yeah, and it, I, look, I think most of the companies that are going through the regulatory processes um, are doing the right thing. So they, they know that they can't go to market with a product unless it has been reviewed. But in fact, accessing these systems is not that difficult for the average person anymore. You know, you can go into ChatGPT and play with it. There have been stories recently about 
for instance, GPs deciding to use ChatGPT in the course of supporting their patient care. And here's where the problem arises, because we now have people who can access free technology, applying it in contexts where it was never intended to be applied. And it may look like it's providing useful support to, to that doctor, but in practice, um, it's, it's not designed for that purpose, and we don't have any evidence that it actually is effective in that context. And so there can be misuse of the technology, unregulated use of the technology. That's kind of where the harm is going to arise. So we really do need really strong regulatory frameworks around the use of this, and we need them that pretty quickly. Yes, there is a process happening right now being run by the Department of Industry, Science and Resources, if I've got that, if I've got that name correct. They, they have been running roundtables um, around Australia on the safe and responsible use of AI. And they've been inviting experts like Toby and myself to participate um, in the, those conversations. There's also been lawyers involved with those conversations, startup representatives, a whole range of, of people, stakeholders from, from this arena. And we're having discussions around how to regulate and what the right balance between supporting innovation and yet protecting our citizens is. And finally, uh, because we will have to wrap up shortly, uh, the very important question of how all of this data and maintenance and development of massive computer systems uh, takes a toll in terms of the energy they use and in the middle of a climate crisis, this is a, a very important part of the space. Can you tell us how much energy these big data centres use and, yeah, what we should be thinking about there? Yeah, so the data centres use an incredible amount of energy. Um, they, depending on what we're talking about, so if we're talking about training models, because it can take weeks of compute to, to get those, those models built, that can correspond to the equivalent of 60 flights back and forth between London and New York um, in terms of the impact on, on our climate. There's also the ongoing use of, of the technology. Um, there are some estimates that if we run a query on Google the old-fashioned way versus the, the chat GPT enhanced or the generative AI enhanced um, way, that it will cost us five to ten times more per query in terms of energy usage. And that's because we have to run the query through a much more complex and sophisticated model in order to get the result. That's going to add up, right? If everybody's executing, if we're executing around the world millions, billions of queries per day, that's going to, to add up to a huge toll. So this is a really important area for companies to be thinking about, but perhaps also consumers who are actually have these technologies at their fingertips, as you said. Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, this is a really important ongoing discussion that I'm sure we'll be having again. So hopefully uh, you can come along and uh, tell us more about the, the work you're doing. 
That was Professor Karen Verspohr, Executive Dean of the School of Computing Technologies at RMIT University, talking about AI in the healthcare space, the role of capitalism and energy use. And you're on 3CR, this is 855 AM. Now, I'm going to be joined by Samantha Floretti, Program Lead at Digital Rights Watch and a columnist at Guardian Australia discussing all things AI and media. Good morning, Samantha. Hello, thank you for having me. That's all good. Samantha, firstly, give us an idea about AI in journalism and what's been going on in that space. Yeah, so there's been a few stories that have come out recently about AI, specifically generative AI, being used in journalism to, or in media more broadly, I should probably say, mm-hmm. to, gener- to generate stories. So 
Earlier in the year, a popular tech platform, um, CNET, was caught uh, publishing AI-generated stories, and they were riddled with uh, factual errors, which got them into quite a bit of trouble, as you can imagine. Mm, yes. And then recently here in Australia, News Corp, um, there was reporting about them using generative AI to generate 3,000 stories per week for local news outlets, which is just an insanely huge mm. number of stories. Yeah, def- definitely is, Samantha. It's a fascinating space. Those 3,000 articles um, and those wondering, uh, this is the fascinating thing, Samantha, is uh, the news local uh, side of News Corp, which I find fascinating. It's one journalist is out there reporting on one space of, uh, of Australia and um, that can cause, you know, that journalist to be writing, you know, multiple articles a day. So I always find that, um, I find it fascinating in that space, News Corp, uh, it's almost, you know, they just want to create that digital space. And, um, you know, the thing the thing I find fascinating is out of those articles, a lot of them are real, like, you know, basic stuff that a journalist could write. For example, like the cheap fuel prices, for example, which is one that one that was an example. And uh, it's, it's fascinating in, in that idea of... Um, uh, you know, that almost just cover, AI is covering the local news. Yeah, absolutely. I think that one of the things to note about this is that, yeah, the stories at the moment are what they're calling like service information. So it's like where to find the cheapest fuel or like stuff about the local hairdresser or stuff that you could Google for the mm. most part. Mm. But they are putting it behind a paywall, which I think is interesting to note. Yeah. Um, it's all about their subscription kind of, numbers, Samantha. Yeah, exactly. It's about getting people in the door and subscribing. Um, so a lot of it is just sort of generating more and more content, more, even if it's not particularly high-quality content. And mm. I think something to keep in mind, and I'm sure you agree with me, but maybe you don't, I'm sure you do, <laughs> that local, like regional and rural areas deserve high-quality journalism just as much as um, urban areas. And so it's quite disappointing to see it rolled out specifically in these regional areas just as though like it doesn't matter as much. Mm, mm. Yeah, I think it's it's concerning. It's an interesting space, Samantha, because you look at uh, regional journalism across Australia. There's a bank. There's a in Western Australia. If listeners are wondering, there's a there's a banking inquiry at the moment, which is happening. And uh, the only way I'm getting information regarding that is is through Twitter. You know, Samantha. So it shows you the changes of that. And um, it's concerning. You, you wrote in an article, a column, sorry. Uh, uh, in The Guardian, and you said uh, you argue journalists deserve protection from the encroachment of AI on their jobs. How do you how do you think we're best solving this issue? Like, do you think there's almost a way that companies, News Corp, the ABC, um, you know, Fairfax, uh, ACM, all need to kind of come together and work out the best options in, in, in solving this issue? I understand the arguments of using AI for cost-cutting and, and the like, so you're not uh, in, in that space, but do you think there's a better better way of solving this issue? Yeah, I mean, I think there's a few things that could happen, and I'm pretty solidly committed to the solution being worker-led. You know, we've seen we've seen overseas that strikes um, with writers and and actors and whatnot having an impact, and and a big part of that is them being uh, disgruntled by how technology is being used as part of um, their work or being proposed to be used. So, I would love to see journalists and media workers come together more strongly in Australia 
and take a stance on this as well. My concern about it coming from the top down is that that's when you do start getting more into that area of the argument being, well, it's a cost-cutting thing, it increases efficiency and it increases convenience and all of these things because that will ultimately work for the the giant media corporations Mm. and not necessarily for the journalists themselves and also not necessarily for the smaller or independent media organisations as well. Yeah, definitely. It's a it's a tricky space. Like I don't think three CR could oh, it could have AI. Um, our, our radio systems go back to the nineteen seventies, uh, and that's the great thing about um, community radio. You know, you get to play with the old fashioned equipment, and listeners out there um, get to see, get to hear a, a great different different content, but also uh, get it in a way that's less um, less worried about the, uh, the the stepping on toes aspect, Samantha, which I think is something that probably is why why the likes of News Corp and the likes of using AI is because of that efficiency and their argument will be, oh, we've got to break this, the story first, um, which, I, which I always wonder, why do you need to do that? You're in a 24-hour news cycle. <laughs> yeah, I think the other thing that... One of the great things about 3CR and other you know, community radio and other um, you know, smaller and independent outlets is that you get a real diversity of content mm. and, and material. And one of the other side effects of using uh, generative AI is that it can sort of start to become really homogenous. You get the same kind of tone, you get the same kind of, um, yeah, like vibe. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, And that's, I think, a real shame for, for people in general to sort of have their, their experience of the media kind of narrowed like that. Yeah, definitely. There might be like more quantity of content, but the quality is just pretty terrible yeah it, it certainly is in that space as well samantha and something i was you, you point back to the algorithm side of things and you were saying about the repeat over and over i find it fascinating because you you see the tiktok space the youtube short space that's becoming impopular and that's something that i find fascinating is you know i only have to scroll five times on youtube shorts i'm not a tiktok user but a, a youtube short um, you use that for five scrolls and then you end up getting, you know, and this is something you could probably lead to is you end up getting more negative content than positive content. So I might get five videos of Formula One or soccer uh, or something like that and then the next three videos will be, um, you know, Andrew Tate or, or something down the lines of that, which could be re- which is one, negative, and two, um, manipulates your brain into thinking that you should believe in those people and that, that's, a cons- that's something I really fear and concern. Yeah, so I guess what you're, what you're talking about now is uh, we're sort of moved in, uh, into a different area of AI. So I think this is this is a really good um, point in that there are so many different types of AI technologies, and at the moment we're getting a lot of sort of broad sort of strokes commentary about AI in general, and it can be kind of confusing about what we're actually talking about. So. Um, what what you're talking about now is more around the sort of like recommendation and engagement and amplification algorithms that underpin a lot of um, social media platforms and digital platforms, which is slightly different to generative AI, but just as concerning in different ways. Mm-hmm. And yeah, you're absolutely right. This this um, sort of algorithmic rabbit hole that these uh, platforms can take people down, which happens because of a result of their business model, right? So they they function by keeping people on the platform as long as possible to be able to generate more 
revenue to be able to collect more of our personal information to feed back into the targeted advertising ecosystem. So it's in their interest to keep people on these sites for as long as possible. So that how they do that is they they kind of they they take notice of what you're engaging with and what you're lingering on and then they might edge you like quote like down closer down the rabbit hole towards more and more extreme content because they know that that will hook people's attention for longer. Mm. So on TikTok, so I I use TikTok and I confess that I quite like it. Um <laughs> I know that's like really sort of problematic to say, but it's it's really silly. I find it really fascinating. Um, (laughs) But one of the things that I've noticed while using it is that it doesn't really allow people the opportunity to be kind of curious. So, Mm. for example, it might show me a video that I don't politically agree with. I don't really, I'm not necessarily saying I want to see more of it, but I'm like, oh, that's that's interesting. Like I'm, I'm curious enough to, to watch it, but then it interprets me watching it as, oh, we should show Samantha more of that. Yeah. And so all of a sudden you end up seeing more and more of them. So at the moment I'm trapped in um, <clears throat> productivity talk, which is not a space I want to be in. Mm. Um, it's just like hyper sort of capitalist, like tips to hack your life because I was really <laughs> curious. And and now it's all it's chosen me, and I'm like, no, I I don't want this. Like, how can I dig up out of this hole? And it's really hard once you get stuck in there. And so it really is. That's like that's a silly example, but what that sort of ends up happening to like to other to other people who who end up in quite dark places is, you know, you might be feeling a little bit down and linger a little bit too long on one sad like heartbreak video mm, mm, and next yep. thing you know you're like right down into like really really dark spaces on the platform and once you're there it's exceptionally hard to get out again yeah definitely i'm surprised media organizations have, have they not have they looked into this space as well samantha like i'm just finding this fascinating you know someone like a, a real a, like a real far-right media organization for example would would they target would they kind of use this as well for their own consumption do you mean the platforms or do you mean like using recommendation algorithms? Pro, the, more the use of recommendation algorithm, for example. Yeah, I, I suspect that we will see more and more of this. Um, as far as I understand, it hasn't happened too much in like the written, like um, in, in yeah, the written media, but it's mm. very popular in, uh, in video content and streaming and whatnot using recommendation algorithms to help. The, the, the way that they frame it is to, like, help users find the content that they want. So we know that, like, you know, SBS and ABC use it um, on their, um, uh, like, iView and SBS. And, oh, well, actually, maybe SBS doesn't. I'd have to fact check myself mm-hmm. on that. Yep, yep, I don't want to spread misinformation. Yep, I understand. <laughs> I, I, totally, I totally understand where you're coming from. So there's that you, you see the ABC using it. If you watch, for example, Utopia, you'll be given to Fisk, for example, or something like that, I, I yeah. totally get you. It's just something I find fascinating, Samantha, because it's it's scary in that space because because people, as you were saying, could go down that rubber hole and they limit their creativity, which then comes back to journalism. If you're if you're so focused on one one particular topic or issue, that can then uh, yeah. lead to lead to the writing or consumption or, or their delivering of the news completely different to what it should be. Yeah, so one of the things that I think is really interesting about this in particular is that it is possible to do recommendation algorithms well, and there's been some research into it because, I mean, obviously we live in a time where there is just an enormous 
enormous amount of content and material out there. And so we need some sort of way to sort it out and to be able to make sense of it all. So having a curated or recommended recommendation system can be really helpful. What it, what it depends, though, is like what's the underlying motive um, and yeah, incentive behind it. So for the most part, that's profit. If it's for a big corporation or for yeah, a big company, they're using their recommendation system in order to generate more profit. So that's when you end up with kind of a sort of perverse consequences where you end up with really terrible like algorithmic rabbit, rabbit holes and whatnot because it's like profit at any, at any cost. Mm, mm. But if we were to recalibrate the underlying incentive and you were doing it for, you know, um, you could be maximizing, um, you know, exposure to, to diverse opinions or, you know, some other, some other um, metric or then, then we start to sort of think about different ways we could use recommendation algorithms in the public interest and in the public good. So when we think about somewhere like the ABC using it, for example, they obviously need to meet their bottom line mm. as well to get a function. But what we should, I would you know, be arguing we should be fighting for is a real sort of um, public interest recommendation system or public interest use of AI in the media to benefit people rather than to try to you know, extract more and more data and more and more profit. Yes, definitely. Just quickly before we let you go, Samantha, just um, Digital Rights Watch, where can we go if we want to check that out and where can we go to check your columns? Yeah, brilliant. Um, so um, Digital Rights Watch uh, stands up for human rights in the digital age and we have a website, www.digitalrightswatch. Uh, .org.au. We're also on social media. You can find us. Um, and me, you can find my writing uh, all over the place, but as, um, <laughs> uh, often at The Guardian. Um, but people, I don't know, people can Google me if they're, if they're interested and we can chat more, come and talk to me on Mastodon. <laughs> Love it. Um, thanks very much, Samantha. It was a really great chat and uh, have a lovely uh, Wednesday. Beautiful. Thanks so much. Perfect. And that was Samantha Filoretti, uh, Program Lead at Digital Rights Watch and a columnist at The Guardian Australia. Um, so, yeah. Fantastic interview, uh, Pat, and, and what a great show this morning. Definitely we uh, have really unpacked quite a lot this morning on uh, a wide range of uses of AI from in drones to... Uh, detecting skin cancers mm -hmm. and all the the risks and concerns debates in between so uh, thank you to our listeners for tuning in and thanks to our, our guests uh, Sarah Bentley from CSIRO and Dr Toby Walsh and of course Karen Verspor and your guest from the Guardian and talking about Digital Whites Watch, Samantha Florini. A fabulous uh, array this morning. And AI continues for the rest of the week on breakfast, so you can keep tuning in every day this week. But uh, the Wednesday breakfast team will see you next week. Yeah, yeah, and just quickly for listeners, if you want to catch up on the show, go to 3cr.org.au, go to podcasts, Wednesday breakfast to check all our shows. All right, see you guys next week. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.